Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is The Guardian. I mean, just the scale of the litigation, the complexity, it really was a challenge to try to distill it down into a, a story that the average reader could, could get their head around. You know, I, I suppose I just connected with the community very, very early on. And so that was what sort of like hooked me in and just kept me going. Hi, I'm Paul Daly. I'm an author and a columnist and feature writer for Guardian Australia. Welcome to Book It In a show about the big ideas behind great books. Today, I'm talking to the author, Paul Cleary. Paul was a journalist for many years, including for the Sydney Morning Herald, the Australian Financial Review and The Australian. He wrote about economics, politics and resources. In recent years, he has written celebrated books about big battles over Australian and international resources. These days, he works for a leading NGO in Australia, where he is a First People's Policy Advisor and Advocate. His latest book is Title Fight, How the Injibandi Battled and Defeated a Mining Giant. The Injibandi are an Aboriginal group of around 1,000 people who are based in the Pilbara region in the north of Western Australia. And just like in too many places around the continent, their frontier history includes documented accounts of dispossession and massacres. In this interview, I talked to Paul about how he has documented the Yinjibandi people's resistance and fight against Fortescue Mining Group, whose majority shareholder is Australian billionaire Andrew Twiggy Forrest. It's a David versus Goliath story, an Aboriginal David against the Great White Goliath Mining Company. It's a more than decade-long fight over land rights and native title that's gone all the way to the High Court and is still going on today. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners are advised that this episode contains names and references to people who have died. Hi, Paul. This is a complex story, so I want to start with a bit of background information for our listeners. In 2009, royalty negotiations between FMG and the Yinjibandi broke down. In 2013, FMG started mining Yinjibandi land at the Solomon Hub. This was about a year after FMG opposed the Yinjibandi claim for native title over the land. Then, in 2020, the High Court decided to dismiss FMG's appeal. It confirmed the Yinjibandi Aboriginal Corporation's bid to be recognised as exclusive native title holders. Now, Paul, I reckon your book Title Fight is a courageous one because you document quite clearly how FMG uses the legal process to remove any obstacles in its way. Was it intimidating for you and your publisher to pursue this story? Yeah, certainly defamation was uh, right there at the forefront when I started developing this as, as a book proposal. Uh, some of the research I'd actually done earlier for my PhD documented how the company's uh, strategy 
uh, revealed in some leaked emails talked about how they would use defamation against land councils that, that were resisting their fast-track developments. So this was certainly uh, yeah, very much at the forefront. And then another publisher over in Sydney was, uh, was interested but uh, made very clear that I would have to bear all of the legal risk if uh, we were going to go forward. So uh, thankfully, um, Black Ink, which is a very courageous publisher, I have to say, was willing to take this on. And uh, Murray Schwartz, the the owner of, of that organisation, um, you know, made the decision to take on the legal risk, which was fantastic of him to do that. And so we were able to proceed. And I think in terms of the strategy to minimise the risk was we, I mean, we were very factual. We gave FMG the right of reply. All, all the way through and, um, you know, avoided sort of opinion and the gratuitous uh, comments along the way. Uh, their corporate affairs people were willing to answer my questions. They didn't answer all of them. I had to go back a number of times to get answers on things that they left hanging, uh, but nobody wasn't willing to, to to speak to me about the book. But they did play and engage, obviously. They did, yeah, which was, which was good. How many years in the making was this? So I first started writing about this uh, story 10 years ago. I came across it uh, as, as a journalist working at The Australian when the community was first being divided by the, the tactics of FMG. And uh, so that was in 2011. And then at that time, I was developing a proposal for doctoral research, which was to do with Aboriginal communities and mining and, uh, and looking at sort of the strategies for the long-term management of the sort of royalties and other benefits they get. And as time went on, I shifted more and more towards this Yinjimandi story because it was just, I suppose, so compelling and uh, and such a stark, you know, story of a powerful mining company against this tiny little community. So a labour of love and a bit of an obsession from the sounds of things. Does it help to be obsessive when when you're on the trail of something like this, Paul? Well, you, you need to be obsessive because part of the, uh, like I've never come across a story that's done my head in, in this way. I mean, just the scale of the litigation, uh, the complexity, uh, it, it really was was a challenge to try to distill it down into a, a story that was, uh, that, that the average reader could get their head around. Uh, so yeah, you did need to have that level of obsession just to, to really to follow it. You know, I, I suppose I just connected with the community uh, very, very early on. And so that was what sort of like hooked me in and just kept me, kept me going. Let's rewind a bit and, and so you can tell us a bit about the Aboriginal community at the at the centre of this, you know, in the middle of this fight with uh, FMG. So the Yinjibandi people, they're one of a, a number of, a, of Aboriginal communities in the Pilbara region of Western Australia. Um, they number now probably about a 1,000 people. They're not all living in the Pilbara. Many of them now live uh, in Carnarvon, Caratha, um, but but still, it's quite quite a significant uh, group are still based in the town of Roburn, which is actually not on their country. That's in the low lying area. Um, and after colonisation from the 1860s onwards, the Yinjibundi people were were literally sort of rounded up and um, used as as virtual sort of slave labour on on cattle stations and in mining and in pearling. Um, and that's because as the colonists moved in, uh, one of the key constraints they faced was a shortage of labour. And so they needed to get Aboriginal workers in there to, to help run their cattle stations and other projects. So this was obviously well before FMG were on the scene. The local custodians were being used to clear land 
build roads and make fences. Yeah, yeah, I'm working as, sto- as as a stockman and uh, doing all the sort of the hard heavy lifting on on these uh, these stations, and and that sort of prevailed for about a century uh, until the 18, late eighteen nineteen sixties when equal pay uh, was introduced um, by the federal government, and that then led to the discarding of large numbers of Aboriginal people uh, because essentially they went from having free labour to having to pay a, a, a an award wage. Um, and then many of the Aboriginal people were then discarded and, and they lived in a shanty town uh, on the edge of uh, this, uh, this town of Roburn, which is uh, the, the first big settlement in the, in the Pilbara region, about 30 k's inland from the coast. And they lived in this sort of shanty town in the 60s, dreadful infant mortality rates, the health conditions, it's like something you'd find in sort of like 19th century Africa. Um, and it wasn't until the 70s that there were some housing built, but the, the town of Roburn, where they were based, it was, was pretty dysfunctional and people had nothing to do. So alcoholism was rife. It was a, it was a pretty rough town. It's a really complicated post-colonial history, isn't it, involving numerous court cases, native title, non-exclusive possession, possession and potential billion-dollar compensation cases. You run us through, in a linear sense, just where the claim started and where we're up to. Yeah, well, one of the really interesting things about the this um, story is the Yinjibandi people, together with their neighbouring group called the Nolama, who were more based along the coast, within a few months of the Native Title Act coming into force in January 1994, they lodged one of the very first Native Title claims, which I think is a real indication of how strongly they felt about their connection to country and, and how they'd been pushed off it. They uh, got together with the help of uh, the former Premier, Peter Dowding, uh, a lawyer who was connected to the community um, via marriage, um, and he helped to facilitate some meetings that went over uh, several days where they worked out in rough terms where their country was. And then in June of 1994, they finally uh, submitted that claim. And so uh, these claims then take years and years to before they get through the system. And uh, it wasn't until the um, another five years, the late 1990s, that they finally got um, a hearing and uh, there were hearings on country and uh, lots of evidence given. And then in the early 2000s, 2003, uh, finally a determination uh, affirming their native title was handed down uh, by the federal court. That uh, determination was in the form of what's known as as a non-exclusive possession and about 80% of the area was deemed as having native title being extinguished by the, uh, the existence of pastoral leases and other government infrastructure. So it was a sort of a a pyrrhic victory in a way, but it still was really important for them to have that affirmation that that this was their country. Um, And at the same time in 2003, they decided then to lodge a small adjoining claim to the south, about an area probably about the size of uh, Sydney and Melbourne. Um, and they, they, the reason why that came in later was because they hadn't quite sorted out their boundaries with their neighbours, the Bunjama people and the Eastern Gurama, but they'd finally worked that out and then they lodged this joining claim. And that adjoining claim happens to be exactly where uh, FMG then developed this massive mine called the, 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 the Solomon Hub. Um, and what's interesting about that adjoining claim is it has large areas or significant 
parcels of what's known as unallocated crown land. And that means there's no pastoral lease there. And lo and behold, where the Solomon mine is located happens to be on one of the, on the biggest parcel of unallocated crown land. Which is why it's possible to contest it to this extent. And then to get ex- what's known as exclusive possession, and that is that, that no one else has a right there. It's all theirs. It's the strongest. Even though native title is not a strong property right, it's the best you can get in terms of native title. It's terribly complicated. And one of the things I'm always struck by when we're talking about native title is how few Australians, you know, white or Indigenous, actually understand it. It's um, it's a it's an extraordinarily complicated area. One of the anomalies for me is that we're dealing with essentially a a white legal construct that is relying on largely white anthropology to connect people to country. Does that ever strike you as as um? extraordinary and, and anomalous. Yeah, no, no, it is actually, you're right. It's a good point to make that that most of the anthropology is done by non-Indigenous uh, people. And, um, you know, there's many wealthy consultants out there as a result of that. And um, I think one of the things with native title, even though it's called title, it's not sort of a, a nominal sense of title. So it's not like your house title, right? No, it's not freehold in a sense. And even though the Injibandi have uh, the strongest form and technically speaking they they can have a right to say what can go on on their country, uh, that's not an absolute right in, in, in a sense. So the, the, the weakest form, the non-exclusive possession, basically just allows you to go back and visit your country, to conduct some ceremonies, sort of visiting rights, basically. And then the exclusive possession, which the Injibandi obtained in that adjoining area, uh, is a stronger form, but even so, it has its limitations. Another interesting element of this is that historically, you know, from the colonial and post-colonial frontier, white anthropologists have a really kind of mixed reputation in some of these communities. You know, some of them operated with an absolute salvage mentality, you know, back in the early um, 1900s when really they were collecting everything to do with what they thought was going to be an extinct people, fallaciously, of course. So there is this residual distrust of them in, in some communities too, I think. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, and let's let, let's be clear that that a lot of the consultants, the the there's you know, the anthropologists, the archaeologists, what's known in the, in the trade as ethnologists. I mean, they work for the developers as well. Uh, so, in fact, they're mainly engaged by the developers. And what happens is when a development comes along, like with the Yinjbandi and the Solomon Hub, you know, the people have been pushed off their land. They had even though they've tried to maintain that connection, they're not living there anymore. A lot of the areas pastoral leases, so they don't get they don't get to go back there. So the people who do are these uh, non-indigenous consultants, and they get to find out all this information. And they, as you say, in in a sense, kind of have ownership of it. Um, and and so they're the people who are being paid to to discover all of this uh, in a, in a way on behalf on behalf of the developers, not the Aboriginal people. And it's a it's a pretty fraught space for a non-indigenous writer and researcher too. I, I mean, I, I have some experience of that myself, but um, as a non-Indigenous writer in a divided community dealing with issues of deep Aboriginal history and cultural desecration and mining and native title, 
how do you go about ensuring agency for the traditional owners you're dealing with, you're writing about and interviewing? Yeah, no, that, that's that, that's a really good question. I mean, I suppose the first thing I did was I made sure, as you say, it was a it is a divided divide community, it remains so. So I made sure that I tried as much as possible to speak to people on both sides and particularly the side that had broken away, known as the Willamurra. And I had some great interviews with those people and got on with them really, really well. And and I think they they come out in the book as as, you know, good people, decent people who kind of just had a different point of view and maybe were, you know, sort of weren't taking as strong a stand as 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 the Injibandi Aboriginal Corporation. And I think also that um, you know, they 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 in a way had a bit of a defeatist point of view, but that doesn't mean they're bad people or anything like that. And I guess one thing I'd say about this book is there's been no complaints at all from uh, the breakaway group. Uh, none of them have come back and said that it's that it's unfair or portrays them in a in a really negative uh, light. And I, but I suppose the other way that I gained agency was the protagonist in this book, Michael Woodley, who's the CEO of the Yinjibandi Aboriginal Corporation. I mean, I had a very very close working relationship with him. Um, Michael is someone that who I think. I connected with uh, straight away. Very first conversation with him on the phone, I, I remember it vividly, thinking this guy is really something. And, and so we've had a very close working relationship throughout uh, in my journalism, in my doctorate and, and in doing this book. You know, it's it's in a way much his book uh, as it is mine, you know, and he's sort of, you know, I've sort of done the writing, but he's been the, you know, the, the main protagonist and, 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 and the real driving force of this book. Paul, tell us who is Michael Woodley. So Michael's a really interesting man. Um, he's been the chief executive of the Yinjibandi Aboriginal Corporation since he was about 35 years of age. Uh, he's born in 1972, and in a way, he's a sort of like a and the the embodiment of the, the clash of civilizations that's going on here. His mother's Yinjibandi, his father is a white miner whom he's never known. Uh, he grew up in the town of Roburn, which is a pretty tough largely Aboriginal town. Um, his grandfather, his name was Woodley King, and he was a really strong leader of the community who um, he decided that what needed to happen was he could see all the young kids and other oh, people getting into trouble, the alcoholism that was rife. So he set up a community out on Yinjibandi country about 100 kilometres inland called Nurawana. And um, from the age of about 10, Michael spent a lot of his time living out there because uh, he Woodley realised that you could see he was hanging out with the wrong crowd and he wanted Michael to connect with his tradition. And so he took Michael and a number of younger kids out there. He took older people out there who were trying to recover from alcoholism. And so Michael lived from the age of 10 till about 20 this very uh, you know strong traditional lifestyle. They did a lot of hunting and gathering on their own country. Uh, they set up their community there. The, the community is still going to this day. Uh, it's going really well. And so I suppose Michael is someone who is a survivor, and and the way he survived was through connecting with his tradition, and that's something that's really given him uh, an enormous amount of strength. And I think that's the thing that's given him the the energy to power through this incredible battle with FMG because I really don't know how he's managed to keep his head above water, to be honest, in in, in wading through the, the massive amount of litigation that's gone on here. 
you draw the characters really well, I think. One of the people I found just really fascinating was um, uh, an old fellow, Ned Cheedy. Do you want to tell us a bit about him? Yeah, so um, it was in 2012 I did my first visit to Roburn. So after spending a year of talking to people on the phone and talking to Michael and trying to engage with the Willamurra as well in interviews with the Willamurra were surrounded by numerous PR people when I was interviewing them on the, on the phone. But So I got to Roburn and I was able to interview people in person and I knew that at that time Ned was was really getting on. He was, I think, 106 at the time. We're not exactly sure how old he, he really he he really was. But I said, you know, could I could I interview him? And they said, yeah, sure. And uh, and so I went over to the house, and it was he was living in the home of his his daughter, who was now deceased, um, and he was on his own in a single bed, just lying there. And he, you know, he seemed very weak at at the time when I first met with him and it was very nice that I was just left with him on my own I mean there was no one there sort of looking over my shoulder so um so there was a lot of trust there I suppose um and so he was very very weak to start with and we we just got talking about what was going on with all the mining and all that but what was extraordinary is as the interview went on he just became more and more animated um, and and he said some really extraordinary things about what was going on with all the mining and the fact that the, their country was just being dug up and and shipped offshore to the other side of the world, which is something that he actually just found really hard to comprehend. And then he just said he said that's wrong. What's happening in terms of the, the digging up and the impact of on their heritage? Um, and but one of the questions I really wanted to ask him was just who this Michael Woodley person was and uh, because Ned had signed some affidavits that were given to the some of the courts that were were looking at this project um, and he'd signed some affidavits saying some extraordinary things about Michael Woodley and his knowledge of country and and he being someone who was a, the right person to speak about Yinjibandi law, culture and religion. And, um, and so I asked him this question, which was very straight, question to say, so what do you think of Michael's leadership in this dispute with FMG? And as I say in the book, the question was just sort of like electrifying, you know, mm-hmm. like he just lifted his torso off the bed, leant on one arm and gesticulated and said, you know, he's he's going the right way. He's doing the right thing. So he'd really anointed him. Yeah, really. And this had actually happened earlier on during the the native title proceedings where he'd really um, also said some very strong things about Michael's knowledge, but he really anointed him as someone who was who was going about things the right way. So it's one thing to dig up country, which has a deep spiritual sentience, because country in Indigenous traditional belief encompasses the creation of the world and every living thing in it. But... You know, it's quite another thing to destroy sacred sites in the way that Rio Tinto did at Duke and Gorge. Paul, when it comes to um, Yinjibandi land, what has potentially been destroyed in this mining operation? Yeah, good question. I mean, I guess my way of thinking of it is there's probably several Duke and Gorges that have been uh, destroyed uh, in the Solomon area. And there's proof of that, actually. And I've got an appendix in my book where I um, list uh, all these sites and they're referred to as rock shelters, ochre quarries, that sort of thing, things that are highly significant. 
I mentioned earlier, you want to develop a site under the current law in Western Australia, the Aboriginal Heritage Act, you have to do an assessment, you have to tell the government what's there, and then if you want to impact on it or destroy it, uh, you have to get approval, and invariably you do get approval. Uh, So what happened was the first group of consultants came in and they described this area around the Solomon Hub as what they called a rare find. And part of that reason was that, as I mentioned, it being unallocated crown land, towards the later part of the 19th century, as Aboriginal people were being pushed off their country by the pastoral leases, they were sort of congregating in these areas. And there's reports uh, of large numbers of Aboriginal people still living a very traditional lifestyle up until the 1890s in this particular area of the Solomon Hub. And so as a result of that, but also the tens of thousands of years of occupation as well, uh, the consultants, as I said, described it as being highly significant. They discovered rock shelters and ochre quarries, and they said that further investigation was needed to determine the ethnographic significance of this. And also what's important, really significant, is that they believed that they'd come across burial grounds as well because the Injibadi and other groups used these rock shelters to place um, their, their dead. And um, and FMG just didn't want to know anything about this. So they got rid of these consultants. They fired them. Right. And we should say that this was over a decade ago. At that time, FMG said that they stopped using these consultants because they could not meet their timelines. FMG said that they subsequently received different advice from another consultant in relation to some of these sites and that they didn't think they were as significant as first reported. Yep. And another group came along and they just expedited everything. And so as I as I show in the book and in that appendix, these sites that were seen as highly significant uh, and, and required further work and could possibly be burial grounds, although they, they actually weren't able to excavate, were just slated for destruction under the Aboriginal Heritage Act. So just to be clear, what we're talking about is potential desecration of, of burial grounds. Yeah, that's right. And, and what's interesting is that under the, uh, the under, state, under the Mining Act, under state law, there actually specifies what you're meant to do when you find cemeteries and, and other, well, you know, European-type burial grounds that actually you're not allowed to mine them. But in this case, uh, we don't really know because the, the additional work wasn't done. And it's interesting, I put some questions to FMG um, about this, and initially they actually didn't even answer. And I went back to them, I said, you just can't you know, leave this hanging. And so they came back with a sort of a quite an obscure type of answer, which was to say that, uh, you know, to their knowledge, this this hadn't happened. But it's easy to say that because the investigations weren't carried out. It highlights an extraordinary cultural anomaly, really, doesn't it? You know, I think again about 20 years ago when, when I was in Europe and writing about an enormous fuss from Australia, a diplomatic rift with France, which intended to develop an area of the Somme, not where Australian soldiers were formerly buried, but where they'd fought and were lost and, you know, consequentially buried. Um, there was no way that development for the airport was going to go ahead over the graves of Australian soldiers. Yeah, that's right. The legal framework we're dealing with is just all about development. It's really very much about development to proceeding. And you had a company like FMG, which at that time... Uh, had a lot of debt 
and was just you know hell bent on developing as fast as possible. It needed to start digging up iron ore to bring in the revenue to pay down its debt. So it was it was not interested in in in, in anything that was going to slow it down. One of the extraordinary facts, part of the backstory um, to emerge in in your narrative, is the historical connection between the Pilbara and the American Civil War. Yeah. Do, you want, do you want to tell us a little about that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is, it is unbelievable, actually, that um, so the American Civil War broke out in April of 1861 and uh, a year prior to that, a mission was, was sent to the UK uh, led by um, Francis Gregory, who was from the Lands Department of Western Australia, and there was a concern in the UK that, they could see war was coming because Abraham Lincoln had gone to the 1860 election with a pledge to end slavery, and the, they could see that this was going to divide the United, the United States. And so the British government and their cotton merchants feared the loss of cotton supply as a result of this, this impending war. And so they were looking around for a new area to, to grow cotton, and they, lo and behold, funded an expedition to the Pilbara um, in 1861, led by Francis Gregory, which spent uh, several months scoping out this area, naming sites, naming hills and rivers and the like. So they named the Fortescue River. Fortescue was uh, one of the, um, like an assistant minister in the UK government for the colonies. And so that's how, that's where the name Fortescue comes from. Um, And so Gregory actually believed that this area was like the Nile region of Egypt, even though it had no water. You need a lot of water to grow cotton. And uh, and so they scoped it out and they said this would be great for growing cotton. And uh, they also named the Hemsley Range. Uh, they looked around and they noticed that there looked to be a lot of iron around this area. So it, um, it wasn't Lang Hancock who discovered an iron ore in 1960. It was actually Francis Gregory a century earlier who just said, yeah, there's a lot of iron ore around. <laughs> were they were they looking for new potential slave labour too? Oh well, absolutely. I mean, so so the not not the not the expedition itself, but it became clear that if you were going to develop this area, you would need labour, and so there was a, a system of enslavement that that was rolled out across the Pilbara and elsewhere in Western Australia, known as blackbirding, and that was where you'd go out and hunt down Aboriginal men, able-bodied men. Um, and you'd literally put them in these these neck braces and ankle braces as well. That's how you would um, obtain their labour, and then take them onto a station and then hand them over. And that's how the, that's how this region was developed. That's how the wealth was created. So is my fever. <laughs> Kidding. Mel, I'm so cold but hot. Uh, but I'm going to get you that budget. Just as soon as... Right. Mikey! Popcorn bowl! Press 1 to use Instacart and get your family's sick day essentials delivered in as fast as 30 minutes. Press 2 to keep working. Do not press 2. Just use Instacart. Brian. The community today, it's still 
suffering from the legacies of colonialism, really, the um, generational poverty and disadvantage. Yet there's so much money being made from the land. Yeah, no, that's right. I mean, look, it's a classic uh, case of what's known as the resource curse, I think, and that is that you can have vast amounts of wealth being generated and uh, people still living in poverty and being, you know, completely marginalised. And it's true that Aboriginal people, uh, some have got jobs working for mining companies, but there's been a study by uh, Professor John Taylor from the ANU, which was commissioned by the Pilbara Traditional Owner Groups, came out two years ago, and it, it said that about a third of the population was better off, but two-thirds were actually worse off. And that's partly because what happens when you get a mining boom, the costs go up. So all of a sudden where you're living, uh, you're on the same income and your cost of living goes up because of all this money that's flooding in that increases asset values and the price of everything. And so you've actually got people being uh, worse off. And it's true that, you know, as I say, some people have got jobs, but mining isn't for everyone. And that's why one of the things I argue in the book is that mining companies need to be thinking about the idea of self-determination, of empowering communities, and thinking about options for people uh, and, and, and not just being all about mining, which seems to be what FMG's agenda is. It's sort of a bit of the station mentality, you know, we'll give you a job, you know, come and work for us, we'll give you a job, we'll train you up. And that's that's all well and good. But as I say, that's not for everyone, particularly when it involves, you know, digging up your country. So with FMG's agreements, even when they where they have paid royalties, they're very, very modest. They're probably about a tenth of the industry standard, which is paid by Rio Tinto and uh, and BHP, uh, a few million dollars a year for a mine that's generating five to ten billion dollars of revenue. That's the the Eastern Gurma, the neighbouring people. They uh, signed up to an agreement, extremely uh, difficult negotiations with FMG, refusing to give ground. They're getting one point nine million dollars a year for their their share of Solomon, which is which is probably worth yeah to them about five billion of revenue, you know. And there, and there's no trust fund being set up. There are no savings vehicles being set up, which other companies like Rio Tinto have done. So the idea of, as I say, kind of like diversifying other opportunities. That's just completely missing. It's just not part of the agenda. The past is not really that far away, is it? I'm, I'm you know, what comes to mind is is flour and sugar and the old, uh, the not so olden days of the uh, the 1920s. Yeah, no, that's right. And just in terms of the protracted legal action, where does it go next, and who's going to win the title fight? Yeah, no, great question. Well, yeah, I guess I'd argue that the the Injibani have already won. In, they've, they've sort of won the. The first few rounds by getting to the high court and, and and getting that affirmation that they do have exclusive possession, which then gives rise to compensation. So even though with native title being a fairly weak form of property rights, it means that you actually can't stop production, you can't stop things happening on, on your country, but you can sue for compensation, although this has never happened before. It's never been the case that a mine has gone ahead uh, against the wishes of the traditional owners in the, in the era of native title. So this is what's happening next. Um, so the Yinjibandi are preparing for this. I say in the book there were some attempts to negotiate with FMG to reach 
an amicable uh, resolution. They didn't go anywhere. And so the next uh, chapter is the compensation battle. And then the Indomani are going to then next lodge their compensation claim, which uh, they've had KPMG looking at it. And uh, their figures pretty much line up with mine, I think. And uh, so even though they can't, well, who knows what they can sue, what they can sue for. As I say, we're in uncharted territory. So it's a it's an amazing story and it's incredibly filmic in my mind too. And there there are these incredible characters like Ned Cheedy and Michael Woodley. It really lends itself to documentary or film or or docudrama, given the interest at the moment in, in Australian stories, particularly ones with a with a strong indigenous element. Has there been any any interest in making uh, something for the screen out of this? Yeah, so there is some interest, which which would be great, actually. I think it's, uh, you know, I mean, like Australians have all benefiting immensely from the fact that we're exporting $150 billion of iron ore out of the country every year and that this is what this is what pumps up our exchange rate and gives us our, our quality of life in a sense. And yet there's been very little done um, in terms of film or documentary in terms of just what those impacts are and 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 who are the people that are being most uh, affected by this. We, we hear all about the benefits, but in terms of the costs and the impacts, we don't know much about. So, so I think it is a particularly important story and uh, it would be good to see it, yeah, turned into something that's going to be, I suppose, even more accessible in the form of a documentary or a dramatisation. Well, thanks, Paul. It is a great book that does tell an extraordinary gobsmacking story in a way and and a really important one and and it is important for all Australians to know as much as possible about this because we do all benefit from these resources that go overseas and it's like the title of one of your other books says you know we've had too much luck in this regard so thank you for today thanks paul paul cleary is the author of title fight published by black ink We put a number of questions to Fortescue Metals Group on the alleged destruction of Indigenous cultural sites at the Solomon Mine, its approach to Indigenous cultural heritage and its royalty arrangements with native title holders. A company spokeswoman didn't directly answer our questions, but sent us a statement that says FMG's primary objective at all times is to work on a cultural heritage avoidance basis and that it has tried to protect and avoid almost 6,000 heritage places since it has started its operations. The statement says the company has developed strong working relationships with native title groups and has dedicated Aboriginal heritage teams working with traditional custodians and traditional knowledge holders at the Solomon Project. It also says that as of June last year, 10% of Fortescue's Australian workforce was Aboriginal. We'll post the full statement on Book It In's website. I'm Paul Daly. This episode was produced by Jane Lee and Alison Chan. The executive producers are Gabrielle Jackson and Miles Martignoni. This is Book It In from Guardian Australia. Thanks for listening and happy reading.